let's take our Bibles this evening and turn to the book of Haggai. Haggai chapter 1. Haggai chapter 1, and let's read from verse 1 this evening. It says, In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, in the first day of the month, came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet under Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Josedek, the high priest, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, This people say, The time is not yet not come time that the Lord's house should be built. Then came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses, and this house lie waste? Now therefore thus saith the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. And let's open with a word of prayer. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we do thank you once again for this evening. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to come around your word. Lord, to learn more from your word, learn more about you and the truths contained therein. Lord, I pray you would give me wisdom and guidance this evening as I preach. Lord, it would be your words, it would be your thoughts. Lord, you would speak to our hearts through your word, that you teach us and encourage us through your word. And Lord, may you receive all the glory and all the praise this evening that we pray. I just bless our time now in your word and praise things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, when the Babylonian army completed its destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in 586 BC, you know, the Israelites, they faced years in captivity. They faced years without uh, the temple, which was so central to their life. You know, before the captivity, the, t- the temple was the central part of their life. It was the, the place of worship. You know, it was towards the temple that they would pray. And indeed, Solomon had instructed them to direct their prayers towards the temple and towards Jerusalem, even if they found themselves in captive in a foreign land. It tells us that in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 48. You know, now they had no temple. It was laid waste and their city was laid waste. This is a heartbreaking reality for the nation of Israel. You know, God, in his perfect timing brought about their return. God brought about their return from captivity, their return to Jerusalem, and gave them the opportunity to rebuild the temple, to rebuild the place of worship and to once again consecrate it unto him and and to once again worship him in that place. You know, Cyrus, king of Persia, he was the one who made the decree allowing them to return and rebuild the temple in 538 BC. Just turn with me to 2 Chronicles Let's just read it. Second Chronicles chapter 36. Second Chronicles 36 and verse 22, it says, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord spoken by the mouth of Jeremiah might be accomplished. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and put it also in writing, saying, Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth hath the Lord God of heaven given me, and they have charged me to build him an house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. 
who is there among you of all his people? The Lord his God be with him and let him go up. And so God is the one who stirs up Cyrus here to make this proclamation. And it's in fulfillment of the words of Jeremiah. Jeremiah had prophesied that this would take place. And God's word through Jeremiah is perfectly fulfilled. As Cyrus makes this declaration, you know, God uses a pagan king to accomplish his will. And so the people have the support of this pagan king in the rebuilding of the temple. And with great rejoicing, 50,000 Jews leave Babylon and they return back to Jerusalem under the leadership of Zerubbabel and they begin to build the temple. You know, when they first arrived back in the land, all of their efforts were directed towards rebuilding the temple. That was their priority. That was their their purpose. That was the reason they were there. That was their task. And so they set about it with great fervor, great intensity, great passion. You know, with great dedication to the work, they were able to quickly lay the foundation of the temple. And within two years, the foundation was complete. Just go with me to Ezra chapter 3. Ezra chapter 3, and let's read from verse 8. It says, Now in the second year of their coming under the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, began Zerubbabel, the son of Shaltiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josedek, and the remnant of their brethren, the priests and the Levites, and all they that were come out of the captivity under Jerusalem, and appointed the Levites from twenty years old and upward, to set forward the work of the house of the Lord. Then stood Jeshua with his sons and his brethren, Cadmiel and his sons and the sons of Judah, together to set forward the workmen in the house of God, the sons of Hanadad with their sons and their brethren, the Levites. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, they set the priests in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord after the ordinance of David, king of Israel. And they sang together by course in praising and giving thanks unto the Lord, because he is good, for his mercy endureth forever towards Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Now verse 11 there talks about the, the rejoicing as this milestone is accomplished. After two years, the, the temple mounts, the, the, the foundations are laid, and there's great rejoicing among the people, great praising of God. They're excited about the work. They're excited to have a place to worship God once again. You know, it was then that opposition arose, wasn't it? It was then, right, when things seemed to be going well, when things seemed to be accomplished and the work was going well, it was going easy, if you like. Opposition came from the Samaritans, those who had settled in Palestine, their neighbours. And at first, you know, these neighbours, they tried to join with the Jews. They said, you know, let us join with you. Let us work together to build the temple. And of course, the Jews refused by saying, you know, you have no part in this work. And so the rejected Samaritans began to use whatever tactics they could to bring the work to a halt. You know, their opposition included sending direct appeals back to Cyrus. And his successor warning them that the Jews were a rebellious people. You know, basically saying, you know, you need to stop them because they will rebel against you. And eventually, pressure from the Persian kings and the Samaritans' harassment brought a halt to the work. 
And from 536 BC right through to 520 BC, the work stood still. For 16 years, nothing happened. For 16 years, the, the foundations were laid, but nothing else was touched. You know, they became resigned, if you like, to the state that they were in. They became spiritually stagnant. With no desire to go forward, no desire to complete the work, they turned their attention elsewhere. Because it was easier than trying to go forward and do the work of the Lord. You know, it's then that the Lord brings Haggai onto the scene. After these 16 years where the workers stood still, Haggai comes onto the scene. The Lord sends him along to arouse the people from their spiritual slumber, to wake them up, if you like, to to stir them up, to do the work, encourage them to finish what they had started. And God sends Haggai here with four distinct messages. And the first of these is found in chapter 1, and then the other three are found in chapter 2. This evening we're only going to look at the introduction to the first of his messages. The introduction to the first of these messages. And so we see here this evening, by way of introduction, the timing of the message. The timing of the message here in verse 1. It says, In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, in the first day of the month, came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet, and Israel the son of Shaltiel, governor of Judah, and Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, saying. Now this introduction here to the first message of Haggai begins by telling us exactly when it is that God gives him this message. We read here it says, In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, in the first day of the month. Now it's not often that a prophet gives us the exact date. I mean, we're given here the year, the month, and the day, aren't we? Everything. Everything is given to us. We know the exact date that this prophecy is given. And the date here is reckoned by the reign of the Persian king, Darius. And that's because there's no king in Israel. Now, you go back to 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles. All the dates there are reckoned by the kings of Israel, aren't they? Okay, it was in the fifth reign of this king or the sixth year of this this king, okay? But because there's no Israel, there's no king in Israel, the, the date here is reckoned according to the Persian king Darius. And we're told that the message here comes in the second year of King Darius's reign. And the Darius that's referred to here is Darius Hystaspes. He's often referred to as Darius the Great. And he reigned from 521 BC through to 486. BC. And so that means because the second year of his reign, that means that it is 520 BC. That's the year. We can say that of a certainty. That it's 520 BC when Haggai receives this message from the Lord. And this date harmonizes with Ezra chapter 4, verse 24. Just turn over there, Ezra. In Ezra chapter 4. Verse 24, it says, Then ceased the work of the house of God, which is at Jerusalem. So it ceased unto the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Okay, and so they, they harmonize with each other. These two books harmonize. Haggai and Ezra. It's the second year of the reign of King Darius. It's 520 BC when this message comes to Haggai. 
But not only are we told the year, we're also told the month. We're told it's in the, the uh, second year of King Darius, and it's in the sixth month of the year. It's the sixth month of the Jewish calendar year. Okay, so that means that it's the month Elul, which corresponds to about our September, roughly. Okay, uh, end of August, start of September, somewhere there is when this month occurs. And the fact that this message comes to Haggai in this particular month reflects the, the divine inspiration of God. It reflects the, uh, the timing of the Lord, if you like. You see, the month of Lul immediately followed the month Ab, which was the same month in which Nebuchadnezzar sacked Jerusalem and destroyed the first temple. Okay, it was in the fifth month of the year. Just turn over to 2 Kings and let's read it. 2 Kings chapter 25. We are going to be turning to a lot of passages this evening. So be prepared for that. 2 Kings 25 and verse 8. It says, And in the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, which is the nineteenth year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came Nebuzaradan, captain of the guard, a servant of the king of Babylon under Jerusalem, and he burnt the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem and every great man's house burnt he with fire and all the army of the Chaldees which were with the captain of the guard break down the walls of Jerusalem round about. And so it's the fifth month of the year that the sacking of Jerusalem and the temple took place. And the reason that's significant is that the Jews mourned the destruction of the temple in the fifth month, in the month Ab. They mourned, they remembered what had taken place. Even to this day, the Jews gather at the Wailing Wall in their thousands to mourn the destruction of the temple in the month Ab. On the ninth day of the month Ab, they all gather together to mourn the destruction of the temple. And even more strangely, or by God's divine intervention, you should say, the second temple was destroyed in the same month by the Romans in AD 70. It was destroyed in the fifth month of the calendar year, the month Ab. And so that month is set aside as a month of mourning, even today for the Jews. But it was a month of mourning for the Jews in Haggai's time too. They would mourn the destruction of the first temple. And so you see, they've just gone through this month, this month Ab, remembering the destruction of the temple, mourning over its loss, and then the Lord sends his prophets sends Haggai here with a message concerning the new temple. You see, it's God's timing, isn't it? You see, if you like, their hearts have been prepared, haven't they? Okay, Their hearts have been reflecting. They've been thinking about the temple, reflecting on what they lost, reflecting on the fact that it's lying dormant, nothing's happening, happening upon it. And then the Lord sends his message. God's timing is always perfect, isn't it? God always knows the right time to send his message. So we're told that it's in, the, it's in 520 BC and it's in the month of Lul, but we're also told it's on the first day of the month. Now once again, this is the Lord's timing. So the first day of the month was a day that lent itself to spiritual concerns in Israel. And this is because the, for Israel, the first day of every month was the new moon. And the new moon was a holy day unto the Lord. It was like the Sabbath. They would do no work. They would do no uh, labor in that day or work or business would be suspended and they would give the day to the Lord. It was a holy day. 
they would gather together for worship. Let's just turn a couple of passages. Amos chapter 8, first of all. Amos chapter 8 and verse 5 says, Saying, when will the new corn, uh, sorry, when will the new moon be gone? That we may sell corn and the Sabbath, that we may set forth wheat, making the ephah small and the shekel great, and falsifying the balances by the seed. Here you see the prophet Amos is, you know, criticizing the people for their attitude. You know, when is the new moon going to be over? When is the, the Sabbath going to be over? The idea here is that they wanted to get back to trading. Okay, because the new moon was a day where there was no trading. It was a holy day unto the Lord. And Numbers 28 also tells us that on this day they would bring special offerings unto the Lord. Go over there, Numbers 28. Numbers chapter 28 and verse uh, 11. It says, And in the beginnings of your months ye shall offer a burnt offering unto the Lord. Two young bullocks and one ram, seven lambs of the first year without spot, and three-tenth deals of flour for a meat offering mingled with oil for one bullock, and two-tenths deals of flour for a meat offering mingled with oil for one ram. And it goes on. But it's in the first day of the month they would do this offering unto the Lord on the new moon. So the point is that this is a special day of worship in Israel. Set aside unto the Lord. What this meant is that it means it's an ideal time for the prophets to minister to the people, isn't it? It's an ideal time to bring a message from the Lord unto the people because they're already gathered together. They've already down tools for the day. They're already there to worship the Lord. We know from 2 Kings that it, it seems to have been a common practice for the prophets to minister on these particular days. Just go over to 2 Kings chapter 4 with me quickly. As I said, we are turning to quite a few passages this evening. 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 23. Okay, this is the, the Shulamite woman here. She wants to go and see the prophet, okay? And her husband says to her, and he said, Wherefore wilt thou go to him today? It is neither new moon nor Sabbath. And she said, It shall be well. So it seems to indicate here you got the Shulamite woman. She wants to go... Shunammite woman, sorry, she wants to go and see the prophets. And her husband says, how can you go today? It's not a new moon, it's not a Sabbath. Okay, so it seems to be that this was common practice. On these new moons, the prophets would teach the people. They would take this opportunity. And so the point is here that this is God's timing, isn't it? Okay, this message that comes to Haggai in the, um, in the second year of King Darius' reign, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, is God's exact timing for the message. It's the right time. It's immediately following a month in which the people have mourned the loss of the old temple, and it's on the first day of the month when the people are gathered together to worship. It's God's perfect timing. The second thing we see here is we're introduced now to the prophet. We've seen the timing of the message, and now we see the prophet. Verse 1 again, it says, In the second year of Darius the king... In the sixth month, in the first day of the month, came the word of the Lord by Haggai, the prophets. We're introduced now to the prophet. Okay, it's Haggai. Obviously, it's the book. It's called Haggai. And he's the prophet we're introduced to. As with many of the other Old Testament prophets, Haggai makes it clear here that it's the word of the Lord, doesn't he? 
Okay, he says, the word of the Lord by Haggai, God's word came to him, was delivered to him. See, he's making clear that it's not his opinion. It's not his thoughts which are about to follow. It's the word of the Lord. As far as who this prophet is, all we are told about this prophet is his name. That's all we're told. We're told his name is Haggai. And he's the only person in the whole of the Old Testament to have this name. His name means festival one. And it's derived from the word feast or festival. And the Hebrew word is usually used to refer to the, the pilgrimage feasts of the Jew, Jewish calendar. Okay, so you've got like the feast of uh, unleavened bread, you've got the feast of weeks, you've got the feast of tabernacles. And the Jews would make pilgrimages to Jerusalem for these feasts. So the Hebrew word usually is used to refer to those festivals. And so because of this, many commentators believe that he was probably born during one of these feasts. Hence the reason he's called the festival one. Okay? He's given this name. Okay? And it does make sense because that's what the Jews did. They gave names to their children based on circumstances or based on what they were like. Okay? And so he's given this name festival or the festival one. And apart from this book that bears his name, Haggai is only mentioned in two other passages in the whole of the Word of God. And they're both in Ezra. Ezra chapter 5, verse 1, and Ezra chapter 6, verse 14. In both those passages, he's linked with Zechariah, the son of Idu, okay, who is his contemporary. And Pastor David is preaching through Zechariah. And so these two are on the scene at the exact same time. Zechariah starts his ministry two months later. Okay, so basically, you got Haggai come on the scene. Two months later, Zechariah arrives with his message to the people. And they both minister together with a similar goal. You know, a goal of stirring the people up to finish the work. You know, while their names are not mentioned in the official lists of those who return from Babylon under the decree of Cyrus, you know, they're not found in the, in the official lists, it's probable that both of these guys came back as part of the 50,000. Okay? They were amongst those returning from Babylon. And commentators believe that Haggai may even have been old enough to have seen the first temple before it was destroyed. And they believe that because of second, uh, chapter 2, sorry, Haggai chapter 2 and verse 3, where it says this, Who is left among you? that saw this house in her first glory. And how do you see it now? Is it not in your eyes in comparison of it as nothing? Okay, it seems, to, seems here that you know, Haggai is identifying with those who were old enough to see. Okay? He sort of identifies with them. He says, is it not in your eyes as if it's nothing? Okay? He sort of implies that I know and you know that it's not what it was. Okay? Um, and it seems to be the belief of most commentators that that's what he's referring to, that he's indicating that he was there, that he himself saw the first temple. Now, this is by no means conclusive evidence. Okay, we know that. But if he was indeed old enough to have seen the first temple, that means that as he's beginning this prophecy, he has to be at least 80 years old, thereabouts. 80 years old as he delivers this message. You know, in comparison to this, his contemporary, Zechariah, is a very young man. Okay? We know that from Zechariah chapter 2. 
Zechariah chapter 2 and verse 4, where it says, And he said unto him, Run, speak to this young man, saying, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as towns without walls for the multitude of men and cattle therein. Okay, Zechariah is called a young man. Okay, and so these two, if you like, are from completely different generations, aren't they? Completely different generations, but that doesn't hinder these two from working together to accomplish the work of the Lord. You've got this older man in the end of his, uh, end of his life, you know, coming to the end, ministering, and you've got a young man starting out. But the two of them work together to accomplish the work of the Lord. We know nothing more about this man Haggai. This is all we can deduce from God's word about him. We're not told his father's name. You know, Zechariah, we're told he's the son of Idu. And most of the prophets were given their father's name. But Haggai just says Haggai. That's it. And, you know, many commentators believe that this may suggest he's from a humble origin. Okay, because he doesn't list his family. His family is not of any importance. He's from humble origins. You know, we're, we're not told anything more. We're not told about his call. We're not told about his personal life. Haggai simply appears on the scene after these 16 years where the temple's laid dormant and he delivers God's message to the people. And he's only there for a few months and then he disappears again. It's a short ministry from the Lord. And lastly now this, this evening, we want to consider the recipients of the message. We've seen the timing of the message, the prophet... And now we see the recipients. Verse 1 again, it says, In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, in the first day of the month, came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet, and Zerubbabel the son of Shaltiel, governor of Judah, and Joshua the son of Josedek, the high priest, saying... You see here in verse 1 that this first message here is directed to two men in particular, Zerubbabel and Joshua. And these two men are the civil and religious leaders in Israel at the time. You know, by directing his statement to these two leaders, what Haggai is doing is he's showing their responsibility. Okay, he's pointing out that they are responsible for the situation. You see, if the people are going to get their, their focus back on the work of the Lord, if they're going to finish the job, then the leaders need to take the lead, don't they? They need to take the lead and lead the people in the work. And the first of these two leaders mentioned here is Zerubbabel, the son of Shaltiel. And Zerubbabel has been leader amongst those who returned from exile ever since the decree of Cyrus back in 538 BC. Just to go quickly to Ezra chapter 2. Ezra chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Now these are the children of the province that went up out of the captivity of those which had been carried away, who Nebuchadnezzar the king of Babylon had carried away unto Babylon, and came again unto Jerusalem and Judah, every one under his city, which came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, and the list goes on. So you've got Zerubbabel there mentioned, and he's mentioned, it says they came with Zerubbabel. He's the leader. He's the one leading them back to Jerusalem here. It's under his leadership that the remnant returns from captivity and that they set about this work of rebuilding the temple. And Zerubbabel is a descendant of David. 
And it's his royal lineage that is key here to his leadership, isn't it? Okay, because of his royal lineage, he has a, a leg up, if you like, at being the leader here of the remnants. And Zerubbabel appears in both genealogies in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1 and in Luke chapter 3. He's found in both of them. And so he's clearly in the line of Christ. Okay, he's a, an ancestor of Christ. He's in the kingly line. First Chronicles chapter 3 declares him to be the grandson of Jeconiah. And Jeconiah was the second last king of Israel. Of, well, the southern kingdom, I should say, Judah. And Jeconiah was taken into captivity, uh, sorry, taken captive to Babylon. And then his uncle, Zechariah, was instilled on the throne in his place. Okay, so the last king was Zechariah. But he was the uncle of Jeconiah. And basically what that means is that the rightful heirs to the throne are not the descendants of Zechariah, they're the descendants of Jeconiah. Okay? And Zerubbabel is in that line. Zerubbabel is the grandson of Jeconiah. He has the right to the throne. That's the point here. Okay? He is in the kingly line. And Zerubbabel is also called Shesh Bazar in the book of Ezra. Let's just look at Ezra chapter 1. Uh, verse 8, first of all, <clears throat> Ezra chapter 1, verse 8, it says, Even those did Cyrus, king of Persia, bring forth by the hand of Mith, uh, Theradath, the treasurer, and numbered them unto Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. And if you turn over to chapter 5 as well, chapter 5, verse 14, <clears throat> says, uh, And the verses also of gold, and silver of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took out of the temple that was in Jerusalem and brought them into the temple of Babylon, those did Cyrus the king take out of the temple of Babylon, and they were delivered unto one whose name was Shesh Bazar, whom he had made governor. Okay. In chapter 1, verse 8, he's called the prince of Judah, this Shesh Bazar. And in chapter 5, verse 14, he's called governor, which is the exact same title that Zerubbabel is given in Haggai chapter 1 verse 1. Okay, and so these two are the same person. Okay, you're given two names for the same man in the word of God. And it seems that like Daniel, for instance, you know, Daniel, he was called Belteshazzar, wasn't he? Okay, he was given a Babylonian name. Okay, the same is true here for Zerubbabel. He's given a Babylonian name, Shesh Bazar. Okay, and this name is the one that's used by Ezra Whenever the context is to do with Cyrus or to do with some other Persian officials, then he uses Zerubbabel's Babylonian name Okay, in the context there. And the name Zerubbabel means born in Babylon, while his Babylonian name means joy in affliction. Okay, and so these are the two names that he's given in the, word of God, in the word of God. And so Zerubbabel here is addressed by the prophet, because he is the civil leader in Israel. You know, and if the people are going to begin the work, it starts with him, doesn't it? It starts with the civil leader, just getting a passion and getting a, a desire to do the work of the Lord, taking the lead. And the other one that's addressed here is Joshua, the son of Josedek. And Joshua, like Zerubbabel, was among those who returned from the, in the exile. Okay? He was among the first to return. If you go back to Ezra chapter 2, when we read before, verse 2, it's the second man on the list, isn't he? Okay, Joshua, this is that Joshua. Okay, So like Zerubbabel, he's been there from the beginning. 
on the very first day that they returned and they began the work, Joshua was there with Zerubbabel. And so he's a man of influence among the people. He's the, the spiritual leader of the day. And Haggai here calls him the high priest. He calls him the high priest. And we're told that his father was Josedek. Now, Josedek was the high priest when Jerusalem fell to Nebuchadnezzar. If you turn back with me to 1 Chronicles chapter 6. 1 Chronicles chapter 6 and verse 15. It says, And Jehozadak, which is the same guy, okay, and Jehozadak went into captivity when the Lord carried away Judah and Jerusalem by the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. And so his father was the high priest when Nebuchadnezzar had attacked and sacked Jerusalem and he'd been carried away into captivity by Nebuchadnezzar. And now after the exile, we see Joshua returning. And what does he do? He takes up his role. He takes up the role of being high priest. You know, just as Zerubbabel was the rightful civil leader because of his lineage, Joshua is the rightful spiritual leader because of his lineage. You see, both the kingly and the priestly lines were preserved by God. It's amazing, isn't it? It's incredible. It shows the power of our God, doesn't it? Both the kingly and the priestly lines were perfectly preserved by God through the time of captivity. And it's these two leaders that Haggai now addresses his message to. As I said, as the civil and religious leaders, they were responsible for the negligence of the people. It was their responsibility to now take the lead and continue the work. You know, under Zerubbabel and Joshua, the work 16 years earlier had begun with a great fervor. It had begun well, with the temple foundations being quickly laid. But when opposition came, you know, the people and indeed the leaders had become discouraged. And Haggai, in the message that now follows... He's about to give them a very stern rebuke from God. A very stern rebuke. He tells them to consider their ways. Because they neglected the work of the Lord and been focused on everything else. They've forgotten their purpose. Now as we study the book of Haggai, we do well as believers to take heed to the message contained therein. Because you know, it's so easy for us, like the people of Israel, to become distracted, isn't it? so easy for us to forget our purpose, to forget what we are supposed to be doing, forget the work of the Lord. It's, we sort of give it a low priority in our lives. You know, Haggai will go on to point out that unless we give God the priority, then everything else we do in life will be in vain. Unless God has the priority, everything else is in vain. It brings no satisfaction. It brings no fulfillment. It's not blessed by God. See, only when we put God first and we honor him, will God then bless us abundantly. And that's what Haggai is about to go on and point out to the people. He's about to show them clearly and say, hey, look at, look at the state you're in. Consider your ways. Understand that the reason you're in this situation is because you forgot the work of the Lord. Well, we need to take heed to the message of Haggai and be careful that we don't just begin well, but we continue on and finish strong in this Christian life. Because that really is the message of Haggai. To not just begin well, 
but to continue on and finish strong in the work of the Lord. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this introduction to the book of Haggai this evening. I pray, Lord, that we've learned something from your word. Lord, may we've gained an understanding of uh, this book that maybe we didn't have before. And Lord, I pray that now in the coming weeks as we, we study the message contained therein, that, Lord, you work in each of our hearts, that you'd stir us up to put uh, you as the main priority in our life, that your work would come first. That, Lord, you would help us not to just start well, but to finish strong in this Christian life. May you bless as we close now, we pray in Jesus' name. close this evening let's just turn to 428 428 to the work we sing the first and the last and we'll stand to sing 428